Well, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to the season of Advent. And the next four weeks, we will wait for the arrival of Christmas, the arrival of King Jesus. The word Advent means arrival, an old English word meaning something like that. And so this is how the church usually prepares. Um, and uh, I didn't say anything first service, but what do you guys think of the set? There's a whole lot of Christmas elves worked on that. That was a lot of fun. So good job. So we'll, uh, we'll run the credits here sometime over the next four weeks. But a lot of people did a lot of way behind the scenes work and a lot of fun on this sort of thing. And not much blood. So, you know, it's not Lent. Good Friday. It's Christmas. We don't need blood. So, okay. Um, I, something that was kind of hit me here a while back that I realize that I don't tell you guys. So before we get going this morning, what's my agenda? <laughs> you know, like, hey, that'd be nice to know. Um, when I get up here and teach, and I think Garrett as well and Marta and the rest of you guys who do some teaching around here, part of the agenda is that somehow during my lifetime, and I know it's just my lifetime, but somehow Christianity has become how shall I put it politely, stupid. Somehow Christians have become ignorant. Somehow we've lost our, um, our intellect, our ability to think critically, at least in popular media and so forth. And so I'm on an all-out agenda to create a church of smart Christians. <clears throat> that doesn't mean... I'm smart necessarily, but I would hope that you would be smart. Thinking, critically thinking people who know their Bible, who know their doctrine, theology, traditions, who, who can engage culture because culture doesn't necessarily believe that we have much to offer anymore. And I think it's part and parcel, if not a large part, due to the fact that Christians have, have lost their ability and that tradition of thinking. And we've become sort of just consumers in the church. And sort of just feel good, felt need stuff. And so I'm on an all-out agenda to make things smart. Now, whether or not we'll succeed, we'll find out over time. But nonetheless, that's what I'm after. So that's why I tend to throw some thick stuff at you. I'll do a little bit of it this morning. And then hopefully retreat back so, you know, you guys don't uh, break a circuit breaker or something like that, trip a breaker. But... Um, We'll see how it goes. So I just wanted to let you know kind of where things are coming from, okay? So Christmas is here, and we've ended the entire church year. And uh, if you pay attention around here, you'll see one of the smart things we are trying to do is walk through the entire life of Jesus and his ministry in an entire year. Actually, the year is already set up that way because here we start with Christmas and then we go to Easter, you know, the two big ones. But in between, we fill it in with the life of Jesus. So you're going to see Jesus get born here in a few days, about four weeks. And then he's going to grow up quickly because we don't have much history about that anyway. And then we move into Lent and then towards Holy Week and Easter and then towards Pentecost to release the Holy Spirit. And then we move into the life of the church, the book of Acts. And if you're 
if you don't consider yourself a biblical scholar, you will do well to lean into the coming year, particularly if you're a parent of smaller children. You're like, like I don't know nothing about no Bible. And you'd be like, well, good, because we have things around here that will help you walk through the entire life of Jesus. And hopefully, you'll end up like one of my kids said to me here a couple of years ago, says like, you know, I think it came around to uh, Advent again. They're like, fine, good, I get it. I know, the life of Jesus, that's great. Now what? Like, ding, that was a win. You know, we actually walked through the whole thing. They know the life of Jesus, and it's good. So even if you're not a Bible scholar or didn't grow up in the church, you too can succeed at looking brilliant to your five-year-old. So um, let's see if that works out for you, okay? So we are going to prepare him room for the next four weeks and replay the entire life and mission of Jesus Christ over the coming year. But for Advent, it's four weeks to ponder and prepare our hearts to build excitement and to rethink what life is all about. One of the great failings then in churches like us is that we don't do Advent, and what happens is is Christmas Day shows up, and we're like, yay, let's give some gifts to each other because Magi gave gifts to Jesus, frankincense, myrrh, and especially gold. No preparation, no pondering, no, no thinking, no thoughts about what's the point of him coming. Just sort of another Macy's Day parade. And that's a tragedy. Advent is supposed to be this, this preparation before the party, before the big celebration. It's supposed to be like when the groom enters from the side room, right, with his best men. <coughs> and then... You know, because the music started and it's begun, that the wedding's going to happen. And you know then those women are going to walk down the aisle. And they're all just, I mean, sorry girls, but they're just preparation for what's to come. Right? And you got stuck with that dress. And nonetheless, you know, and then they fling open the back doors. And hopefully she's still all put together there with her dad. And she comes down, the bride has entered and like Christmas is like that. It is waiting for the back doors to be flung open for the, for the Savior of the world. Advent is about waiting and anticipating and building anticipation. And if you don't do it, then you cheat yourself of a good Christmas. If you can't wait, you ruin Christmas. Really. It's just not as big as it should be. It's like my sister who can never wait. She never could wait, and my mother would yell at her every Thanksgiving because she would walk by the kitchen table. We did the afternoon meal thing on Thanksgiving, and she would walk by and pick the turkey to death while it was cooling, picking off little bits. I mean, really, it was a dash in and dash out. She's like a dingo on the Serengeti. You know, I mean, she'd run in there and grab some, and by the time the bird got to the table, it was looked like carrion, you know, because she'd tortured the darn thing. Of course, you know, then we, seven of us, we just attacked the thing, and it was carrying, and everybody's snarling and snapping at each other, and pass this and get out of my way. So she just couldn't wait. And so Advent then is about waiting. And then, of course, you know, talking about waiting, we'll have again in the Wilburn household this year, I'm sure I can count on it, for, for as long as time stands, since eternity began, we have had the debate about whether or not one can open a single gift on Christmas Eve. And I'm not going to tell you which side I am on this thing, but I have to tell you that it is, why did Santa come? What was he doing all day on the 24th if, he, if you weren't supposed to get gifts on the Christmas morning? 
Who in their right mind would open a gift on Christmas Eve? You're like, dude, man, our whole family opens them on Christmas Eve. Like, you guys are heretics. I'm telling you, man, you got to wait. No opening one kid. Like, well, the children can't wait. It's like, yes, they can. Yes, they can. They can wait. They can hold it. They really can. We can train our children to be strong, vibrant. America is going to rise again because we can wait till Christmas morning. But I have no opinion about the matter. So we want to kick off uh, four weeks of preparation and waiting. And we're going to start with the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is not the usual gospel that you think about when you think about the Christmas story. This is where I get the idea of windows for Christmas because John is trying to open up a window between heaven and earth in his gospel. And he works very, very hard at it in the very first chapter of his gospel. And because windows are sort of portals between two universes. Yes, your little house is a different universe inside than it is outside, right? It's a private space. And you know that when you go walking in the evening, you know, before or after dinner or whatever, if you do that sort of thing, and you see somebody's window open, they still have the curtains open or whatever, you got to look. Now, if you look too long, you get arrested. But nonetheless, you have to look. Nothing's going on in there usually. There's nobody dressed up in a clown suit beating anybody or anything like that. But nonetheless, you have to look. It's just human nature to look through windows. And so John, in the Gospel of John, is attempting to have a window to get you to look. We, we love windows. We even have an entire shopping thing for it, don't we? What's it called? Window shopping. That's right. And then one of the largest, most important corporations in the entire world, when they wanted to think up, what should we call this operating system, the entire universe that someone can crawl into, what would we call it? And Microsoft came up with Windows. That's right. They came up with Windows. It doesn't open, but nonetheless, it's Windows. So, Christmas is a window because John is telling us that the, windows of, uh, the window of heaven has been flung open and the thick curtain has been pulled back and the light of God has come to us. Light. It's one of the major themes. John picks up on it here. We're going to read it here in just a moment. Light as though the dawn is coming. And with Christmas, the window between heaven and earth has been opened. Now, if you read your Bible and if you know your Bible... Or maybe even had it in school. But there are four gospel stories of Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In that order. And, um, and John, you'll notice, is very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As a matter of fact, our entire Christmas story really only comes from Matthew and Luke. And even Luke is the most important one. The one you usually read. The one that's in the Charlie Brown Christmas story. Because that's the one that has the angels and the shepherds, you know. Keeping their watch and all of that. Both of those have the whole Mary and the manger. Matthew and Luke have the manger and Mary and Joseph and all of that. Mark doesn't. Mark just avoids the whole topic. He just starts with Jesus as an adult going out to the Jordan River to be baptized by his cousin John, called John the Baptist. But John, John's on a very different agenda. John is going to start altogether differently. He wants to tell you that the story of Jesus is a huge 30,000 foot view cosmic story recreating life as we know it. And therefore, John's gospel begins with these words, in the beginning, sound familiar? Why, yes, Genesis 1, chapter 1, in the beginning, God created. Now, 
I gave you a half sheet of paper right here uh, that you ought to pull out because it's not going to be on the screen or look on with somebody else. And it's arranged as a poem, like a song, as a stanza. And there's a reason for that, and we'll get there in just a second. But uh, I take this arrangement from a New Testament scholar named Raymond Brown, who, who Raymond Brown's done a ton of work on uh, the, the resurrection as well as the, uh, the death and the birth of Jesus. And so he would suggest, as a lot of scholars do, that this first chapter of John is arranged as a poem. It's a stanza. Take yourself back to 30, 33 AD. People were illiterate. Not many people could read. If you wanted to get people to memorize something, then you simply wanted to make it into a song. You wanted to make it into something metrical and something that someone could memorize, that they could say together, that it had a certain cadence to it. And that's exactly what you have going on here. And so it's going to say, in the beginning was the word. Now, in the beginning was the word, you know. And I, I was with Chris yesterday, Chris Lee, our music guy. And I said, you know, Chris, this whole first chapter of John, it kind of sounds like that, um, uh, you know, that movie, So I Married an Axe Murderer, you know, where he gets up to do the kind of beatnik thing, you know, with the goatee and the brain or whatever. And he says, you know, woman, woman, you know, you stole my cat. You know, that whole kind of thing. And I thought, like, this thing kind of has that sort of thing. In the beginning was the word. And you guys go, the word. The word was in God's presence. Presence. You know, and like, doom, 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 doom. You guys get that? And then Chris is just sitting there looking at me like this. <laughs> like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And so I thought it was maybe not going to fly. So I guess we're not going to do it that way. But it would be that sort of thing if you wanted to get it memorized. If you had it down to a beatnik beat, you'd probably get the thing down. Or at least a song. Taylor Swift ought to take this and turn it into something for us. Anyway, we don't have that. So we're just going to have to read it the good old dry, old-fashioned, literate way. <laughs> like we can all read so uh, just follow along here with me. You don't need to read it out loud. I'll just read it. In the beginning was the Word. The Word. Thank you. The Word. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we could do that. We could tell the story. The Word was in God's presence, and the Word was God. And he was present with God in the beginning. Through him, all things came into being. And apart from him, not a thing came to be. That which came to be found life in him. And this life was the light of the human race. The light shines on in the darkness, for the darkness did not overcome it. And then John, the writer, takes a sort of parenthetical moment here. He takes a little break, and he's like, Now there was sent by God a man named John, who came as a witness to testify to the light, so that through him all might believe, but only to testify to the light. For he himself, John, John the Baptist, was not the light. Jesus, he was real light. That gives light to everyone. He was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made by him. Yet the world did not recognize him. To his own. The Jewish people he came. But his own people did not accept him. But all those. Who did accept him. All of you in the church. He empowered to become God's children. Those who believe in his name. Those who were begotten, not by blood, nor the flesh, not by lineage, not by ethnicity, not by human desire, politics and economics and racial distinctions. They were begotten by God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of of an only son coming from the father, 
rich in kindness and fidelity. That's John's Christmas story. The 30,000 foot view from way up there that says, folks, it's a cosmic story. We are remaking the earth. In the beginning was the word, just like God. Oh, as God. And John works very hard to get his language just right. He's handing this down to everyone, copying it, trying to get the whole thing done. Now, what you may want to think about at this point and, and know a little bit is that John is probably the last gospel written. So track with me here a little, little uh, timeline, okay? Jesus probably begins his ministry around 28 or 30 A.D., He's crucified, scholars and all of us tend to think, somewhere around 33 A.D. He's born about 4 B.C., by the way. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all get written between 20, 30 years later. So around 50 or 60, maybe 70 A.D. But John was a teenager with John, uh, with Jesus as a disciple. He was young, we tend to think. And he could have very easily lived into the 90s of that first century. So scholars tend to think that the Gospel of John is the last Gospel written. And it was probably written in the 80s. And it was written to the church. So everyone already knew the Matthew and the Luke and the shepherds and the angels. They already had that story down. What they might not have got was the whole idea of the big picture. And that's what John's providing. A big picture Christmas story. He's trying to explain things in the largest terms possible. He's trying to reframe the whole gospel story. That's what he's trying to do. And if you get this thing down, you're going to realize that John is also fighting the thing of like, is this actually true? See, Matthew and Luke, they don't care. They just tell you about the angels and the shepherds and the virgin conception, the whole thing. Mark doesn't even want to go there and get into the whole controversy of like, is there possible to have a virgin conception? Right? I mean, it's an unbelievable story. And if you think about it, just even rationally or logically, if you want to debate the thing, the fact is that the story is so incredibly hard to believe that nobody could actually make it up. There is no human civilization myth about the deity, the one Zeus type person or whatever, that person actually giving up their deity and becoming a peasant child that's not heard of in any other mythology. It's not a common thing you'd come up with if you wanted to show something going on between heaven and earth, so to speak, in Greek or Egyptian or uh, Mesopotamian uh, mythology or anything like that. (laughs) No, only Christianity comes up with this kind of a crazy story. And John's trying to help us understand. That's why he puts in these big, huge terms. That's what he's really trying to do. John wants his readers to know that Jesus, the one that he lived with, the one that he walked and talked with for years, ate, drank, slept, traveled, was under the tutorship, the tutelage of Jesus. This guy, this man named Jesus, was God. That's what he's trying to get done here. This human being, just like us, was none other than the creator God. John has to choose his words very, very carefully here. He's working very hard. It's a very exact, meticulous thing that he's doing. 
And, and we have to choose our words carefully here too. Otherwise, we'll fall into some sort of bad doctrine. We won't get things right. The word is not just like you and me. It's unique. And yet all of us are a word of God. The word is the very thought of the creator God. That's what it means by the word. It is like the thought of God has been embodied in Jesus. He didn't take over a guy named Jesus. He didn't possess him like some sort of, you know, spirit possession or something like that. He's actually the manifestation. It's hard to get the right words around this sort of thing. The church has struggled with this forever. Matter of fact, the very first big controversy, just not, so let's say John's or gospel getting written around 80. A hundred years later, 180, 200, 250, the controversy of whether or not Jesus is created by God or equal with God is in full bloom. It's begun by a bishop named Arius in Egypt, and it becomes the Arian controversy. And you'll still see, this is now it's called a heresy, you'll still see this heresy in groups like the Jehovah's Witness today who believe that Jesus is created and he is below God. Not equal with God. John is working very hard here to tell you just the opposite. I'm not quite sure they actually, Jehovah's Witnesses use this scripture, but it's really due to some very bad Greek because uh, they don't know the Greek. I'm sorry to say that, but that's the truth. John works very hard to make sure that you understand that Jesus is the creator, the thought of God, who was with God in the beginning, working very hard at it. That's the first big controversy of the church. It gets settled in 316 at a council where the church all agrees that Jesus is the same as God. The Father is the same as the Spirit. Now, Muslims, Muslims and Jews accuse Christians of being polytheist, right? Poly meaning many, theist meaning God. They accuse us of being polytheist, thinking that we believe in more than one God. And if you ever have any Muslim friends and you get into one of these kind of serious lunchtime conversations or a Jewish friend, you'll run into this sort of thing like I have. And it doesn't help that many Christians are confused about what is the Trinity as well. You know, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. If you're interested in this sort of thing, uh, Pastor Garrett teaches a class on the Apostles' Creed, and you do well to take that because he digs into this, you know, in depth. But for our purposes, we'll just try and keep it simple. It is good not to think of the Trinity in terms of numbers and math. You don't want to take God apart and then try to put him back together. Try to put God back together. It's bad to think in terms of three, like a number, like there are three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a bad way to think about it because you're going to get yourself backed into a corner and, and won't have things figured out. Christians believe in one God. There is one God, our, our faith says, and Scripture says. Paul says it too, 1 Corinthians 8. It's like this, if you're trying to explain it. Don't Muslims believe that Allah is compassionate? And merciful at different times in different places. But that doesn't mean that Muslims think that Allah is two separate individuals, compassion and mercy. Well, no, there are attributes of the one God, not two individuals. Well, Christians do not think of God as three individuals, but really as three relationships. 
So trade out your three number for three relationships within itself. Just as uh, I have relationships that are different, uh, I like to use the word persona. Persona, I don't think it's ever gotten much traction every time I use it. I don't know why I keep trying to use it, but it seems to work for me. I have three different personas. I have a father persona. I'm a father to my children. I have a son persona to my parents when they were alive. I have a husband persona. I even have a brother persona. You have different personas in your life. God has different personas. Different personages, if you should say it this way. But not really individuals. He's not split. He's one. It's God in in three personas. And that's not math. Those are all relational. And that's why it's called Father and Son and then the Spirit, the love between them. All relational terminology. When you want to describe God, you say there's one God, but relationally, the only way we can talk about how God is being manifested is in three. And that's how that gets put together. Now, if this all sounds really confusing and mysterious to you and really just otherwise boring, then don't worry because everyone struggles with trying to understand what John is trying to work out. And as a matter of fact, John is struggling with trying to work it out himself. It's difficult. So let's just leave the heavy stuff for right now. Then I kind of loaded you up. Leave the heavy stuff and let's just turn the whole thing upside down and around. Instead of Jesus lying in the manger, We'll do well to think that all of us, each and every one of us, laid in our own little manger, our own food trough story. Every one of us has a little food trough Bethlehem story that you've been living out. I mean, each and one of us was at one time a helpless infant. And yet you, you are a word of God. You're not the word of God. But you are God-breathed. That's what he says right there, down there. He says, John's saying it. He empowered to become children of God, those who believed in the name, those who were begotten, dot, 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 by God. You are a God story. You have your own little Christmas story going on in life. It's got ups and downs and bumps and, and curves. But you were started by God. Everyone starts out as a nobody. Everybody starts out as a stranger in the manger. Naked and vulnerable. Dependent upon someone like a Mary. Or dad. Each one of us is on this journey. Started this strange little tale that you've been living. It's all been started by God. You are a word of God. You are not God. But you are come from the thought of God. You are God-breathed, and this means you are not a mistake. You are a Christmas gift to the world. Your life is not pointless. It has some place to go that is in the mind of God. That's why you're here. You're not an animal. You're a thought of God with a purpose, with desires, And everything belongs inside of that story. All of the bad and all of the good belongs in the one story that you're on. 
God knows everything about you. He, he's, he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows every hope. He knows every dream that you've had. He knows all of your self-destructive self-talk, the little lies that you tell yourself, and the tapes and the, the files that play in your brain that tell you that you're no good. He knows every laughter and tear and every joy and every memory that you've ever had, every picture of a loving smile that you've ever had that says, nobody would ever understand the joy I'm having right now. Every laughter, every tear, every longing that you've ever had is in the mind of God and shared. What you have is the God of the universe nodding along with your life and shaking his head at your sadness. This is what we call the grace of God. And if you're sitting here, this means your story's not over, not by a long shot. For some reason, I've been going through pictures of the kids. I don't know why. Maybe started organizing files on my computer, or maybe it's because they're getting to be teenagers and I'm beginning to forget. And so um, I just was looking through pictures, and I just downloaded to my phone a picture of my little girl when she was probably three, wearing her butterfly wings. And um, that's what dads do. And, um, and then there's my son sitting there like Mr. Businessman in front of the computer when he's about two and a half years old, typing away, buck naked, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and I think it's because you begin to think we all have hope. And you look at your children and your parents looked at you when you were little, and they have hope for you. And they have dreams. They want to see your life turn out. And they need to tell you that they love you and that you belong to them. And it's all going to work out. See, your strange little story has hope to it. No matter what's going on right now, no matter what went on this past fall or summer or whatever else has happened, whatever cancer you've been through or whatever else, to be human is to hope. And if you lose your hope, you stop being human. And that's why it's so important for John to tell us that you are God begotten, that you are not a mistake, and that you belong here. So that after even 15 or 25 or 45 years, you still have that spark inside of you, the divine hope inside. You're a God-breathed human. And hope is why we have kids. And hope is why we go to school and why we get a job. And hope is why we grab a paycheck. And hope is why we rake the leaves. And hope is why we fall in love. Mary had a hope for her little baby. And she pondered and treasured them in her heart, saying, maybe, maybe this child will someday save us from the Roman Empire and from all the crushing oppression that our people have been through. Just maybe. And she believed God. You see, you belong to God and you want to return to God. You are in a relationship with God. And that's why we do well to think about God relationally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because you are also in that relationship connected to it. And that's why in verse 12, that's why in verse 12, John says, but all those who did accept him, he empowered to become God's children. 
You're a child of God. You're a child of God. So by God's gracious gift, we all go forward. And that's why we want to anticipate Christmas. It's for the hope of a new life and a new year beginning. Hope is a gift, everyone. And hope will cause you to do all sorts of crazy things. You'll even put up with your extended family this Christmas because of hope. Because of hope, you'll wade into a shopping mall when you know good and well that that's a dumb idea. (laughs) Hope will even cause you to go go into debt that you shouldn't be doing. (laughs) Hope will make us all reckless searchers and searchers for love and searchers for God. And it's okay. Now it comes time to celebrate the Lord's table. And today, it's a, so if the servers want to come forward, today it's a table of hope. It's a table of hope. It's anticipation. Because in that same gospel of John, John tells us that Jesus called himself the bread of life. And he called himself true drink, the living water. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am true drink. And these symbolize the real presence of of God in our midst, that he's with you today. And this is why we hope. And that's why the table today is for hope. And that's why on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because I am the bread of life, Jesus said. I am true drink. I am the living water. I will sustain you throughout the journey. And if you would stand with me, please, we will proclaim the mystery of faith. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink. And so says the Lord. Let's stand and let's end with a tradition that's kind of been going on around here is that we've been using the Celtic Daily Prayer Book during Advent to wrap things up. And this comes from Great Britain, from the North Umbria community, and uh, kind of modern-day monks. And um, they have a great prayer that they've, uh, a blessing that they've come up with. And it goes, watch and pray, the Lord shall come. Those who are longing await his appearing. Those who listen await his cry, the cry of a baby. Watch and wait and listen. So let's do this in sort of a call-response fashion, all right? Watch and pray. Those who are longing await his appearing. Watch, wait, and listen. Go in peace.